here. I think maybe some of you are aware I had some difficulty getting here yesterday. Uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous day today in uh, New York City, and uh, I love being up here. I have many, many family uh, that live here. Um, so I'm grateful for the weather. Um, I was observing uh, before, uh, during the uh, period before beginning, that uh, I love living where I do, which is in Charlottesville, Virginia, Mr. Jefferson's uh, country. But um, one of the down, the only downside is that it is difficult to get out of there sometimes if you're relying on, on air flight. So, uh, but I'm very happy to be here today. So uh, it has been 42 years uh, since the Schaefer Commission report, which was released in 1972. I know I have been invited to deliver this lecture because of a historical perspective uh, that I have on this, not only uh, having written uh, the book that was mentioned, uh, but also having uh, been uh, uh, involved with the Schaefer Commission and in drug policy reform since then. I want to say uh, I am not a historian by training, so I consider myself basically an observer of history, and I think that that's basically, you know, of interest. Uh, uh, to you. But I have to say, I have been a participant in this story also. Um, and so it wouldn't be surprising that I have a point of view uh, about this. And uh, I undoubtedly, this is a warning to you, will un uh, slip into kind of a first person view of this, what we did or what we were thinking uh, at the time. Uh, and so there's a lack of detachment, and I just want to uh, warn you about that. And I, the other w risk already I'm engaging in is the of digression here, because, <laughs> you know, this is a fascinating story, and I have a little bit of time, and I hope I'll get through what I intend to do here. So here's my game plan. Uh, I want to spend, uh, uh, you know, two-thirds of the time uh, that I have here looking backward and giving you the historical view of it. Um, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the time looking forward a bit, uh, and, and the change of point of view there will be essentially prescriptive uh, in terms of what we need to be thinking about going forward. Uh, looking backward, um, I'm going to sort uh, roughly the, uh, the history here into three or four phases, depending on uh, how you think about it. So first is the uh, origins of marijuana prohibition roughly 75 years, uh, uh, late 19th uh, and 20th century, um, which are described uh, in my book and, and, and others. And it's a well-known story by now. You've just heard you know, an account of the LaGuardia Commission's role in that. Um, so I'm not going to talk about that. Um, the second phase would be what might be called a gradual uh, erosion or unraveling of marijuana prohibition. Uh, which may be as a 40-year period, uh, beginning in the late 60s, but I think nicely demarcated uh, by the Commission report itself, which recommended decriminalization in 1972. Um, so this period overall that uh, we are probably still uh, in uh, is characterized by uh, fitting starts toward decriminalization uh, and the legalization of, uh, of, of medical use. Um, the book I wrote and was published in 1974, um, and in that book at that time, given what was happening post-commission, we actually, I think, called the last chapter the collapse of marijuana prohibition. And we thought it was at hand in light of the things that were then happening, but that turned out surely to be premature, and indeed worse, because it was interrupted, this period, by a surprising and mistaken 
uh, uh, effort to reconsolidate uh, marijuana uh, prohibition. Um, now, that may, as I said, just interrupted this kind of erosion of prohibition phase, uh, but that's why I say you can characterize it maybe as a, as a, as a, um, a third phase. But now, this may be the collapse of marijuana prohibition. We don't yet know. Um, and if the phase, I mean, obviously we're in the midst of it. It's a bit hard to do history, you know, at, at that point. But if it turns out to be the case, I would actually date the period from uh, November of 2012, when the referenda in Colorado uh, uh, and Washington were adopted, I think, quite surprisingly. Um, all right. Now, one could, if the history unfolds a certain way, maybe even date it from the Compassion to Use Act in California in 1996, but I'll have a little bit to say about that. So with that overview, um, I want to begin with the commission, just a few words about the commission, and then in a very, very quick way give you sort of my perspective on these 40 years uh, uh, between 1972 uh, and, and, and 2012. And then, as I say, at that point, I'm going to shift to be thinking and looking forward in terms of uh, what might happen next. So with regard to the commission, the charge to the commission, National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, um, the, the, the commission was uh, established in 1970. It was part of the Controlled Substances Act uh, legislation. Um, uh, and uh, there were obviously lots of revived controversies uh, about marijuana. Uh, um, and the LaGuardia Report was kind of, the, at that point, uh, the major focal point in terms of, of marijuana policy. But a lot of things had happened between uh, the LaGuardia Commission Report and uh, 1970. Um, so the Commission's charge was to spend a year um, thinking about marijuana policy. What, there were lots of bills that were being thrown in the Congress about doing something about, about marijuana policy and lots of different uh, opinions, of course. But doing something li to liberalize the law was surely, I think, uh, a major uh, ex expectation. Um, and then the second year was to be spent on looking at drug policy generally. And there had not been any national effort to do either of those things uh, uh, before. Um, quickly reviewing the two reports. So uh, the marijuana report was issued in March of 1972. It was called Marijuana, a Signal of Misunderstanding, which uh, there's a lot of <laughs> double entendre in, in, in that. Um, and the basic position of the commission was decriminalize possession uh, of small amounts uh, of marijuana and associated consumption-related behavior. Um, in taking that view, it was a very conservative rationale. It was essentially a cost-benefit rationale in terms of thinking what little you are getting in terms of the benefits of, the, uh, of, pro of, of uh, criminalizing uh, users. Um, uh, and with, uh, at that time, what we even regarded then as excessive costs. Um, and so, uh, uh, that was the essential rationale. There were other things that were said in support of it, uh, but that, uh, that was the, the basis. Other part of what the Commission says is not legalization. Um, do not, the alternative uh, analysis, uh, policy positions that were analyzed were essentially keeping things the way they are, which we call total prohibition, uh, decriminalization, which we called partial prohibition, uh, and then a regulatory uh, approach. And it's important to think about the reasons that the Commission gave, because I'm going to come back to this later. One was, we do not know enough 
about the effects of marijuana. Um, I think this, the, the sense was, and I think what the Commission says, that there's no indication that moderate use of marijuana is harmful. Um, uh, however, one needed to worry about what the effects might be on young people as they are developing, and we don't know enough about that. Uh, and in particular, we don't know enough about the effects of chronic long-term heavy use. Um, and at that point, you know, we were looking around for populations that had been studied or could be studied, um, and we actually made a trip to Jamaica to actually, you know, uh, and, and thank that we even funded some research uh, on looking at uh, people who were chronic heavy users uh, in, in Jamaica. But the point was, and I think that this is all accurate, we do not know enough, uh, uh, and it would at least be premature um, uh, given the uncertainty. But also very importantly, another reason that was given is we do not know enough about regulatory alternatives and how to regulate uh, 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 psychoactive substances for recreational uses um, while protecting the public health. And just think about it, this is 1972, think about the models that were out there. People talk about the alcohol model. The alcohol model is in many respects from a public health standpoint a disaster. That doesn't say prohibition is a good thing, right? Regulation is a good thing, but this was not a good model, right? And think about tobacco in 1972, virtually laissez-faire, you know, uh, with regard to tobacco policy. So at that point, the idea is we need to learn more about how you actually can regulate uh, a product in the nature of marijuana in a way that uh, protects the public health. All right, so that was basically the story in 1972. In 1973, the drug policy report, um, and I think it's worth saying a few words, about it's not the main topic here, but saying a few words about that report. It was what we would think of today written from a distinctly public health sort of point of view. Um, it emphasized what we would now, it wasn't characterized this way then, essentially as focusing on demand reduction, uh, and particularly the prevention of addiction, and the treatment of addiction. Uh, De-emphasize uh, uh, the um, uh, law enforcement side of the equation, although obviously you want to contain availability. But on the other hand, let's really put our resources uh, on the demand uh, side. These were, I think, the hallmark features of drug policy during the 1970s, during the Nixon uh, and Ford and, and, and Carter administrations. Um, and also, the overall perspective in that view was to stop talking about the drug problem as if it was one problem, that you really have to think about the nuance and the variations uh, of different sorts of drug issues or drug concerns and drug problems. And in particular, of course, in, the in terms of the present context, to not lump marijuana in with all the illegal drugs because we really need to have some nuance in our drug policy. But that was also true for other drugs and it tended to want to say focus on the behavior um, and not on the drug. Uh, so I think a lot of things that I've just said, you would say, well, those are kind of enlightened points of view. Um, I, and I, so I think the, 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 the report that we wrote then, I think could be written today. If you, I mean, I haven't gone back and reread part of it, but I read some of it. Um, and the uh, one thing that I would say from today's point of view that was not emphasized enough just because of what we've learned, largely uh, due to the expenditures that were actually initiated during the, the 1970s in terms of understanding addiction, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, was created basically at this time, 1975, it, went, it, it began. 
um, that we've learned a lot more about obviously the neuroscience of addiction and particularly the impact of drug use on, on adolescent development. There's not much talk about that at that time, but I think that those are important issues. Okay, so that's the commission. Uh, uh, when I left the, the commission, I went back uh, uh, into uh, the academy. Um, I basically had learned two lessons uh, that have guided the things that at least that I have done over the 40 years since then. One is, in terms of drug policy, one is that for the illegal drugs, marijuana and other illegal drugs, we had over-relied on prohibition and on criminalization rather than using other tools to try to accomplish our objectives. Okay, so over-reliance on the penal law and over-reliance on the law in that sense. With regard to the legal drugs, alcohol and tobacco, because again, as I've told you, in thinking about marijuana and the future of marijuana, it was very important for us to put alcohol and tobacco on the table also and to think about, well, what do we know about regulation? We actually went and did a, a re, uh, reviewed the history with regard to alcohol prohibition uh, and particularly the aftermath of, uh, of alcohol prohibition. Um, and what were the public health consequences of prohibition itself, actually from a public health standpoint, that was actually a success. Okay, from obviously from a larger social point of view, it was a colossal failure because of the, you know, the costs that were sustained in many, many different respects. So this is basically the story with regard to analyzing prohibition generally. And so we really thought hard about what the regulatory alternatives would, would look like. So my thought upon leaving the commission is that the other lesson that I learned um, is that in connection with the legal drugs, then alcohol and tobacco, we have underutilized regulatory mechanisms of trying to protect the public health, you know, as I said before. Um, so those are the things that I have been trying to think about, uh, you know, periodically as I've gotten stayed involved in these uh, um, uh, uh, matters uh, in the 40 years since. And so, um, uh, so what I want to do is uh, just quickly summarize some of those things. It's a very, uh, obviously, a, a long period of time, but I think I can say, at least from my point of view, uh, you know, uh, how they've guided my own thinking over the, uh, uh, the ensuing years. And so there are two stories, as I've said here, with regard to the illegal drugs and the legal drugs. I want to talk about each of them, but I think you can see they converge on the issue of dealing with marijuana in the future. So first, with regard to decriminalization. Uh, um, after the commission report, I think there was a tremendous success uh, in terms of uh, changing the nature of the conversation when that report came out. It was a surprise, I think, to many people. This was a Nixon-appointed commission. It was thought to have been stacked against, you know, significant reform. When the report came out, uh, Nixon basically said, I don't care what they think, you know, we're not going to, quote, legalize marijuana. That wasn't, of course, exactly the recommendation. It was to decriminalize. Um, but there was rapid success uh, during this uh, short period of time, tremendous editorial support, really, in all the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, media. Um, in addition, um, uh, national organizations, uh, Public Health Association, National Education Association, ABA, uh, AMA, lots of uh, support basically for this, uh, you know, point of view. Uh, Twelve states decriminalized between 1973 and 1977. So it looked like this was a mainstream uh, uh, reform at that point. I mean, that's the, basically the way that it appeared to me uh, at the time. Now, it suddenly hit the wall 
Um, uh, you know, I can, I mean, I have my own perspective on, on, on why that happened, but I don't, uh, a lot of it would be specul you know, speculative at this point, even for me. But um, what, it did happen, um, and I would put it at roughly 1977, 1978. Um, and so, you know, in, in thinking about why, uh, I would mention two things without actually pretending that this is a comprehensive account uh, about this. One is there were worries, and I think actually legitimate worries, about adolescent use. So there were no surveillance mechanisms that had been in place before, before uh, the commission. The commission did the first national surveys uh, of, uh, of drug use. Um, uh, initially for the marijuana report, and so that was in 1972, uh, and then another national survey in 1973, uh, much broader national survey. Those national surveys have served the foundation, essentially, for the surveillance uh, surveys that have been done ever since uh, then. I think 1974 was skipped. I think maybe the 75 was the, the first one that became, you know, part of uh, the apparatus that the government has been using. Um, and what those surveys show, we obviously didn't have any baseline data, you know, uh, um, except what the commission had done. But there were indications, beginning if you look at the 72 survey and the 73 survey, and then what uh, the, the subsequent surveys uh, revealed, of an increase uh, in initiation among, young, among teenagers and an, an, a, a declining age of onset, a declining age of initiation. Um, I, as I said, that is a legitimate concern. Now, what was, and, and, and should attract everyone's attention from a policy standpoint, the problem was it was attributed to even the thought, you know, of decriminalization. So the idea was that decriminalization was being understood to be approval of marijuana use, that it was in some way uh, affecting the way the perceptions of young people about marijuana, it was, you know, the whole idea in terms of the, the culture is that this is now, uh, you know, an acceptable thing to do, and that therefore we needed to stop decriminalization because of the messages that it was sending about marijuana. The commission had talked about that and said this is exactly the problem, is that we are over-relying on criminal law and criminalization to send the message that we are trying to send about what uh, uh, what is healthy behavior, what is, uh, you know, responsible behavior, and indeed what is acceptable for youth and for kids, right? Um, and oh, that is over-relying, uh, over erroneously relying on prohibition, and that what we need to do is be thinking about all the other ways in which you can try to successfully send the message that you're trying to send um, without hiding behind the penal law and saying, oh, but it's a crime, right? And so that, as I said, this was Part of what we had war warned against, but as soon as those indications were that youth initiation was rising in the, and it was penetrating into lower uh, ages, that was the response. And I think that that is at least one of the factors that were at work. I think there were grassroots parent movements that began at that time. And as I said, in retrospect, as a public health person now, I think grassroots you know, community efforts are extremely successful and very useful in many contexts. I think they've been very helpful with regard to drunk driving, you know, for example. And this was, in some respects, maybe even, even the first of those. 
Um, and, you know, I understand it, but I think it actually had an unfortunate effect in terms of uh, uh, retarding what uh, needed to be done in terms of sound public policy. Of course, this idea matured when, uh, in, in a certain respect, uh, when uh, Nancy Reagan, you know, came into the White House and uh, just say no became the mantra, zero tolerance. So that was the very opposite of what the commission was recommending, right? So that was one thing that happened. Another thing that happened um, uh, were some changing epidemiology of drug use, of other drugs. Uh, I would particularly note the crack epidemic um, uh, and a related increase in crime in the mid-1980s. Uh, Simultaneous worries about HIV uh, and, uh, you know, which eventually led to the reinstitution uh, of the so-called war uh, against drugs. Uh, obviously, just kind of an opening bid in terms of what is going to happen in the uh, panel that follows this talk. Um, so with all the ensuing costs, okay, so again, I'm not going to go deeply into this. We know what happened, right? I mean, over a 20-year period, uh, it was a very, very dark period, I think, in, in drug policy, but I think in our nation's history, you know, more generally, the recombination of marijuana with all the illegal drugs, uh, over-criminalization, uh, over-incarceration, uh, all the, uh, uh, you know, disparities and, uh, and impact on minorities. Um, so bad things were happening. Um, so I escaped, right? I mean, so I had been involved in, you know, in the effort I've just described in the 1970s. When this began to happen, uh, it became impossible to actually have, in my view, an enlightened voice, you know, on this subject. And I think others in the room may have had the same experience. Uh, so let me pick up the other thread, tobacco and alcohol. So during that period, as I look back on this, I've essentially, as I said, spent my, spend my career in various ways in, in, in public health. And um, during, uh, as I look back on this period in the uh, 1970s and, and 80s, um, there were the, the roots of uh, a contemporary public health focus on lifestyle uh, modification, uh, chronic disease prevention, injury prevention, uh, broad public health perspectives, ecological perspectives on, on health issues. Um, for those that are in the public health field, you'll recognize some of the things that I'm going to say. The idea, the healthy people reports uh, that the government has been putting out with goals and uh, specific targets for improving health, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that include uh, eating, you know, a diet and, uh, and drug use and alcohol use and so on, as well as, uh, uh, you know, driving behavior. Uh, and so on. Uh, th the first of those was put together in the late 1970s, and this is the period I was involved in Washington, and I chaired the first subcommittee, or whatever it was called, to do the first set of goals on alcohol, nicotine, and drugs, um, um, and, and, and illegal drugs. Um, so that was part of it. NIDA, I was on the first National Advisory Council for NIDA. Um, one of the things, the first things that we did was to make sure that nicotine and t tobacco use was within the, uh, the, the mandate uh, and research portfolio uh, of NIDA. Um, uh, at NIAAA, uh, Alcohol, and, and, uh, Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Institute, um, a public health perspective was implanted uh, then at that time. Again, this was in the air. I'm not saying I'm responsible for this in any way, but this, this way of thinking was in the air that we really need to do a better job with regard to protecting the public health with regard to alcohol use. Um, and among other things, think about the role that alcohol beverage control agencies that, you know, uh, um, you know obviously have a, a specific regulatory function, um, could be uh, exercise that regulatory function in a way that serves the public health. 
So just giving you those examples, you can see this has become something of a preoccupation, you know, for me in terms of the work that I, uh, you know, have done since the Marijuana Commission report. A lot of it through the Institute of Medicine. And so let me just mention a couple of those things because it leads to what I want to say about tobacco. Uh, so in 1993-94, uh, uh, the IOM was working on a report on the uh, basically reducing the initiation of tobacco use by kids, reducing the onset of, of, of nicotine addiction. Because as I think you all know, if you can basically, you know, get people through adolescence and young adulthood without having begun to smoke uh, uh, tobacco, they will never do it. Right, so it's it's a the, the, the youth youth is the period of initiation, and uh, so that was the focus of the report. You'll recognize that um, uh, David Kessler also had the same view. He called uh, nicotine addiction a pediatric disease, um, and uh, asserted in a very creative uh, uh, you know assertion of authority the the authority to regulate. Uh, um, tobacco under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and uh, basically relied on a lot of the scientific conclusions that had been reached in that IOM report um, uh, when he uh, issued his proposed rule in 1995 uh, and the final rule in 1996. The Supreme Court eventually said that they didn't, the agency didn't have the authority to do that, but we do know that all of that now um, uh, is now sort of part of the Tobacco Control Act that was passed in 2009. Um, in uh, 2003 and 2004, the uh, Congress mandated the IOM to do a report on underage drinking, and I chaired that study. Um, uh, and you can imagine the perspective that was taken you know, there, too, particularly in light of the evolving uh, neuroscience with regard uh, to, uh, you know, to underage uh, drinking. And again, the, the message was there are ways in which we can use the law, um, uh, and particularly relating to commercial promotion, to try to minimize the adverse public health uh, impact uh, of, uh, of alcohol. Um, 2005, 2007, uh, during that period, there was a, a, a another uh, study that the uh, IOM uh, undertook uh, on uh, uh, to develop a blueprint for uh, um, reducing tobacco use in the United States. We uh, somewhat optimistically called the report ending the tobacco problem uh, a report uh, you know, to the nation. Um, and the key idea there was, again, going back to what I said post-commission, how can we use the regulatory space that is now not being used uh, to try to uh, control uh, and reduce the adverse social burden you know, of, of tobacco use uh, with, uh, you know, uh, pro prohibition is not an alternative, right, for tobacco. Right. Even though the goal, ultimately, is to reduce tobacco use to a level that it is no longer a public health problem. To, but the prohibition is not an alternative. Okay. Laissez-faire regulation is a disaster. Okay. So how can we use the regulatory space between making it illegal uh, and, uh, and, and allowing anything to go as if it were an ordinary commodity? Right. So that's the focus uh, of that report. So having said that, let me get back to, to the marijuana story. Um, all the time that I've just referred to, um, marijuana prohibition with the interruption that I mentioned, um, uh, has been unraveling. So what has happened and why? So three points about what has happened uh, during this period of time. One is clearly the medical, the change with regard to the uh, uh, 
social, uh, political, and legal landscape with regard to uh, medical use of marijuana. Uh, this is a risk of digression here, and I don't want to go too deeply uh, into it, but I think in, from a policy standpoint, the medical marijuana problem uh, is very interesting. It is actually sort of, you know, from a policy standpoint and certainly from a logical standpoint, separable from what we do about recreational use and what we do about, uh, about medical use. That had been my position all during this uh, post-compassionate uh, uh, use uh, uh, debate. Indeed, it goes back to the Commission itself because the argument was made to the Commission that what well, we need to do something about the potential medical use. Um, uh, and basically there was a lot of uh, delay in you know, doing some of the, and funding some of the research that would be needed and so on. So that story has been an ongoing you know, story here. But I've always regarded it as a separable story. Right? The Controlled Substances Act itself stands for the proposition that a drug you know, could have medical use and it should be regulated in order to promote the medical use, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that it should be available for recreational use, and that might very well be the case with regard to marijuana. And indeed, the IOM did a report in 1999 that's an important part of the story here. It was after the Compassionate Use Act passed in California about, uh, you know, is there a basis for thinking that there's, uh, you know, legitimate medical use, and what should we do if there is to facilitate compassionate use. So a legitimate and important public policy uh, um, uh, a challenge. Um, now, um, but it's what is clear is that despite the fact that there's no necessary logical connection, as California adopted that act and uh, subsequent acts that were adopted analogous to it, such as in Colorado, uh, there's naturally going to be a risk of spillover from the, the, the medical use and the channel that has been legitimized for medical use uh, into the recreational use market. And quite clearly that's exactly what happened, you know, in California. So despite the fact that those are separable policy problems, uh, it's, history clearly shows that legalization for medical use created the political, social, and economic conditions that were conducive to legalization for recreational use. So that's clearly part of the story uh, here, and as I said, there's a lot more that could be said about that. That's the first thing. The second thing is that support for decriminalization revived, right? So that you had this uh, uh, the interruption because of um, uh, just say no, uh, you know, during this period of time. I am absolutely, during that period, it just was remarkable to me you know, that decriminalization had not, you know, continued to unfold. It is obviously the correct answer, you know, to, to the problem. And I'm still flabbergasted that it took 40 years, and we're still not there yet. But legislatures, I think, are finally doing what they should have done uh, long ago. Um, and we're obviously, there's a New York, uh, you know, story uh, here as well. When the Commission studied enforcement of the marijuana laws in 1970 and 71, um, there were 200,000 arrests nationally, basically. I think it was in 1970. Was the, those were the statistics of 1970. And in that context, we said, that's too many. The costs of arresting 200,000 people for marijuana possession are too high, and we should not do that, right? Well, now there are about 900,000 you know, every year, and of course, you know, you've had the experience that you've had uh, in New York uh, during this period of time. Um, all right, so that's, the, I think, the, the second thing that's happened in terms of continuing what I've described as the erosion of marijuana prohibition. And as these events unfolded, 
you know, during the, you know, the last decade uh, or so, I thought, well, good. We're finally resuming, you know, the march, uh, uh, you know, toward a sensible drug policy uh, that had initiated, I thought, in the 1970s. Uh, and that what would happen would be after, you know, institutionalizing decriminalization, we could get back to the debate, you know, about decriminalization versus legalization. Well, suddenly, in November of 2012, uh, I think Colorado and Washington changed the political context entirely, right? I mean, by putting uh, legalization sort of on the table um, and indeed, you know, implementing it in befuddling to a lawyer, completely in defiance of federal law, right? So, wow, right? Um, all right, now I want to come back to kind of what are we going to do about this in a minute, um, but uh, why did this happen? So let me just tick off, you know, six things um, uh, in terms of, you know, again, just as this kind of cultural, uh, you know, observer that I'm uh, pretending to be here. So first is the demography um, and public opinion, right? So it has to do with, you know, uh, people of a certain age, right? that now play such a more important role uh, in, in, our, uh, in the deformation of public opinion and in our electoral politics, right? There can't be any doubt. We've seen it in its impact on, you know, presidential elections and so on. So clearly, I think demography plays a, a role in this, just in terms of more general support and what is the problem here with regard to marijuana use and that sort of attitude. Secondly, and again, I don't want to say, I mean, there's regional features of everything that I'm about to say, so these are just strands. I think there is a kind of ascendancy of libertarian thinking in various parts of the country now, uh, reflected in gay rights uh, activities, uh, in gun rights also, if I can put those two things together, uh, when you look at kind of general, I mean, obviously these, you know, both of them are polarized issues, but certainly, you know, on the gun issue. But I think, you know, there is this libertarian, you know, streak, and I think that marijuana policy obviously benef benefits from that, or at least is in reaction to it. Thirdly reaction to the excesses of criminal justice policy in general and the over-incarceration that, as I said, the very black day, I think, in the history of our country in terms of what has happened with regard to criminal justice policy in general and the consequences of the drug war uh, in particular. Uh, next, whatever the number is for, the fiscal pressures, these are all related, uh, the need for reducing costs. Uh, uh, of uh, the uh, criminal of, of, of over incarceration uh, and uh, also generating more revenues in the wake of the recession and the downsizing of government. Uh, fifth, I think medical legalization in retrospect has been a Trojan horse with regard to uh, issues with, with regard to recreational use. And as I said, that's a whole other sort of story. A lot of things can be said about it. And then finally, I think a recalibration of federalism. Uh, in our country, and I think that this is just part of it. Why not let the states figure this out in, in, in light of their own values uh, and the devolution of power to the states? It certainly probably makes sense to do that with regard uh, to the question of marijuana, medical use of marijuana, medical legalization, or recreational uh, legalization. Okay, so that's the history part. A, a few uh, uh, words here about what we should do. And as I said at the beginning, I'm kind of now just changing uh, sort of my perspective here. So I'm just thinking now, uh, not as an observer of history, but basically as a kind of a policy architect. So let me just read you what the commission said uh, in, in 1972. Um, when it said, 
it is rejecting legalization as a policy alternative, quote, at this time. First, no matter how tightly controlled legalization would signify approval of use if it had been adopted in 1972 and would, by doing so, inevitably substantially increase prevalence. Uh, and at that point, the Commission wasn't sure, you know, what were going to be the patterns of use over time. I mean, there was a certain possibility that this was kind of a, of a fad you know, in terms of what, you know, had happened in the late 60s and early 70s, and you should basically wait and see what patterns of use, you know, look like before you kind of make policy, and I think that was a perfectly sensible observation. Um, secondly, um, a significant public health problem would be likely to emerge um, uh, if there were a significant uh, increase in long-term heavy use and use of more potent preparations. And again, we needed to think about how you could regulate the product in order to reduce the likelihood that that would occur and that you would end up with the same kind of proportion of problem users uh, that we have with regard to alcohol uh, uh, and tobacco, uh, with regard to marijuana. Uh, also, there's an issue here about whether there would be a substitution effect or whether it would be an addition, you know, to alcohol, and I think that remains, you know, an important issue. We said all of these things back then. Uh, not an, and finally, as I said earlier, there's not enough known about designing regulatory models while protecting the public health. So I'm going to quote what the Commission said. The regulatory approaches used in, in the cases of alcohol and tobacco have failed to accomplish two of their most important objectives minimizing excessive use and limiting accessibility to the young. Despite restraints on distribution and consumption, more than 50 American, million Americans smoke cigarettes and more than 9 million, excuse me, are problem drinkers. Commission further said, future policy planners might well come to a different conclusion if further study suggests a feasible model, if responsible use of the drug does take root in our society, if research uncovers no long-term ill effects of moderate use, if potency control appears feasible, and if the passage of time and the adoption of rational social policy desymbolize marijuana so that its legal availability is not equated in the public mind with approval. So the question then is, do we have better regulatory models today? Alcohol, no, we do not. Since 1972, access, uh, has been liberalized. I mean, I grew up, man, not many people in this room grew up in this period. I grew up in a dry state, right? Access has been liberalized. Promotional expenditures have skyrocketed. Underage drinking is more intensive, uh, and social costs are higher. Changes in social norms with regard to drunk, uh, drunk driving are about the, about the only bright spot, I think, uh, in, that, in that story. So the lessons from alcohol are lessons about how not to regulate and if the objective is to protect the public health and safety while facilitating uh, choice, you know, by individuals who, you know, would like to uh, use the drug responsibly and moderately. So that's not encouraging. I think the tobacco story is more encouraging because we may have an opportunity to learn helpful lessons about more successful regulatory uh, strategies. Now, this is not about comparing drugs. Okay, I'm not saying this as if it's a comparison of alcohol, which of course is worse than marijuana in various ways, uh, or with regard and saying that you should compare it with tobacco. I mean, obviously these are completely different, you know, drugs. But it's whether we can learn something about regulatory design that would reduce or contain use by youth, uh, contain overall prevalence, 
uh, on the assumption that marijuana and alcohol are complements and not substitutes. Um, and we need to study these issues. And we certainly need, if, there, if, the, if the federal government is going to stay out of the way, right, we certainly need to have Congress sanction that, right? I mean, that's another whole issue we don't have time to talk about. But if the federal government is going to stay out of the way and the states are going to be uh, lib uh, liberated to experiment in the laboratory of federalism, you know, about this, as Colorado and Washington are doing, we have got to monitor you know, these, the, these, uh, the outcomes and the effects of this um, so that the states can learn about how to do this well, okay? And frankly, I would not do it the way it's being done in Colorado and Washington, um, but that's uh, another story. Final uh, observation, just so that you have a sense of what I'm uh, observing here. Here are a list of the, the, the uh, tobacco policy levers the policy levers for any of these drugs, but that we focused on in the, in, the, in the tobacco report in terms of trying to promote a more aggressive regulatory strategy with regard to tobacco without prohibition, right? So obviously there are issues about excise taxes as a way not only to raise revenue but discourage consumption, um, uh, using some of that money for prevention, you know, spending, uh, youth access restrictions and the age of purchase, uh, right now, of course, the, it's, it's 18, for example, for alcohol, big push in the public health world to make it 21. Uh, transforming the retail environment so that it is not basically a channel for promoting the use of tobacco, alcohol, or whatever, but actually for trying to, you know, to protect the public health, right? And that has big implications with regard to, you know, point-of-sale promotions, uh, for example. Uh, more radical uh, regulation of distribution. Um, uh, again, the, the, uh, the model that has been adopted the, uh, by licensure of uh, you know, all of the, uh, the, the, the cultivation and distribution might not be the only model that could be used. There were different models that were used in the wake of alcohol prohibition. Dealing with commercialization is probably the most important thing. Just imagine taking the alcohol and tobacco manufacturers, the tobacco companies and big tobacco, and transplanting that, you know, into the world of marijuana uh, legalization, right, and all the promotional activities that, you know, that that entails, okay, that that's beginning to happen right now. I think that's not what we would want to see. Uh, various types of product regulation, we've already some seeing some concerns about, about marijuana uh, products uh, that are now, uh, you know, available. Uh, obviously, not only uh, for smoking, but also ingestion. So I think that's the range of issues that needs to be thought about uh, as we move forward. And if there's time, you know, later on, you know, I can maybe comment on them further. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And could the panel now assemble up at the, uh, at the front? And while they are doing so, I will briefly introduce them. I'm going, in the interest of time, I'm going to have very short introductions and uh, refer you to the uh, longer introductions that are in the back of your program. First, Jeffrey and Aubrey is New York State Assemblyman from the 35th District and New York State Speaker Pro Tem. And more particular for our purposes, uh, he uh, successfully championed legislation in 2009 that significantly reformed the Rockefeller drug laws. 
Jason Glenn joined the University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston, um, in 2006. His background is in the history of science and medicine with a PhD from Harvard University. Not only does he pursue an active academic career, but he's also active in the social justice front in the city of Galveston. Sam, Samuel Roberts is Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and involved in many different institutes there um, concerning social justice and the uh, effect of drugs and drug laws on communities. Deborah Small is Executive Director of Break the Chains, a public policy research and advocacy organization. We're very glad that she's with us this morning. And Bobby Tolbert has been, um, is a member of Vocal New York. In 2005, he is a uh, community activist, and we will welcome all of them right now.